I'm going to go ahead and invite you to have a seat. Again, uh, my name is Pastor Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to tell you on behalf of, uh, the, uh, well, me, welcome. It's good to have you here this morning. We recently started uh, a study through the book of the Gospel of Mark, and so I want to invite you, again, if you have your, your copy of God's Word, to grab that and turn to Mark 1. If you don't have a copy, it should be on the screen for you. You can follow along as we work through this text this morning. I just want to say a couple of comments about the text as we jump into it. It's, it's Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and it's a pretty straightforward passage. It's short. And the Jesus from verse 1 and, and chapter 1 is being baptized by the John of verse 4. And so if you just kind of try to live in Mark for this morning and just kind of see, just, just think through Mark and what Mark's uh, teaching us and telling us this morning, uh, that's, that's what's happened. And Jesus from, uh, from verse 1 is being baptized by John from verse 4. And there, there are some odd occurrences that take place, and we're going to look at those. But really, it's not a difficult passage overall to understand and to, and to really track with what's happening. And so we'll make quick work of, of the text this morning. But as we do, there will be some questions that will rise to the surface. If you're just a, a normal person, you'll think uh, maybe, maybe there's not a lot of normal people here this morning. But either way, you'll probably think the same thing. Like, well, what about this? You'll maybe have a few questions. You'll follow the, the, the movement of the text and of the story and how it uh, develops. But you'll still have a couple questions maybe. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? And I don't want to give those questions to you just now because your mind, your mind might be like mine and wander off. It's far too little to be out by itself. Um, but let's, let's find him honestly as we get through. But I do want to offer this main point for you this morning. Here's the main point, the, the main takeaway. That our only hope of the Father finding pleasure in us is that we be found in Jesus. Our only hope of the Father finding pleasure in us is that we be found in Jesus. So let's back up and go back to verse number 9. It starts out by saying, in those days. Well, what, what days is Mark referring to? Well, these are the days of John the Baptist that we looked at last week. And this is John the Baptist there at the Jordan River. And he's baptizing. This, this phrase, in those days, it's just, a, it's just a connector, and it connects the introduction of Jesus to the baptism of Jesus, or, or the introduction of John, rather, and the prophecy of John, and the fulfillment of John to Jesus' life here. So that's in those days. It goes on to say, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Mark, Mark quickly wants to get to the point. And so if you think about it, you, you'll notice that Mark is kind of one of these guys that he's always out of breath, even as a storyteller. He's, it's, it's quick paced. He's always moving fast. He's trying to get to, uh, to tell this story. He's trying to get it out. And he's constantly saying things like immediately. Immediate, well, he, he's, that's all he says, immediately. I think it's like 39 times in this book. So he's always out of breath, and, but here what we, we see is Mark, John Mark skips over so much that the other gospel writers tell us. He skips over so much, and we actually meet Jesus not as a newborn babe in a manger or as a, a child in the synagogue. No, we actually meet Jesus as a 30-year-old man, and here he's come to John the Baptist to be baptized. And so that's the Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He's the He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah, as verse 1 points, us, points out to us. And so Mark gets there as quick as he can. He gets to the point, Jesus. And we, we say that here a lot, at least we hope to, that it's all about Jesus. It's written on the front of your loop, I think. You should check. It is. It's all about Jesus. And Mark is saying the same thing. He, he doesn't want to tell us a bunch of stories about John, although that would have been fine and appropriate. But Mark's desire is that he gets straight to the point, and that's about Jesus. So he doesn't leave anything out, not integral to the story, but he skips over everything and gets straight to Jesus. So here we see there's no prophecy of Jesus' birth, there's no nativity detail, there's no shepherds, those of you who are, are Christmas uh, fanatics, right, like me, there's no shepherds, there's no wise men, there's no angels, uh, Mary and Joseph are not even mentioned. Here Jesus comes on the scene at age 30 with all the prior details left to some other gospel writer. Mark does mention that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And it's likely that no one had ever heard of Nazareth. These folks that, remember Mark, John Mark's writing to the Christians that are there in Rome. It's likely they don't even know where Nazareth is. And so that's why John, or John Mark says, this is Nazareth of Galilee. I was recently, I found myself at a conference and the speaker began to tell a story about a little sleepy town and he was sure that nobody there would know and he acted like he was even hesitant to share the name because, well, nobody would know. After making some, a few disparaging remarks about the, uh, the, the, the town, if it can be called such, 
he pulled the audience and he said, has anyone ever heard of Bakerton? And surprisingly, there were a few, and I was one of them. And the lady across the table from me, she had also heard of this little tiny town. And she was upset as well that he had uh, made these comments. But Bakerton's one of these towns where you can't get there from here, right? It's one of those towns that's just it's in the middle of nowhere. It's not a destination or a route. It's in the middle of nowhere. You have to be looking for it to find it, and even then you can't find it sometimes, right? This is the kind of town that Nazareth was. Nobody went to Nazareth. It wasn't a destination. It wasn't a, a holiday place. It was a hick town, and you had to be trying to get there. And you really did try because it was a pretty, pretty steep elevation. And so not many people lived there. In fact, at the time of Jesus' life, maybe 500 people, they say, lived there. Just a tiny, tiny little town. And so here... Mark points out that Jesus is from Nazareth of Galilee. And Galilee, if you think about it, is really a pretty large area. It's associated with a, a, a sea. And uh, it's not, Nazareth is not super close, but it is in that vicinity. And so one of the things that they could say is, hey, do you, do you, do you know where such and such is? Well, no, I don't know where that. Well, it's, do you know where such and such is? Yeah, I know where that's at. So this is really just an identifier um, using Galilee. And so what's the significance of that? Well, one thing I would I'd point out that that is, is interesting here, that Mark leaves out, as a, as a self-respected Jew or self-respecting Jew, he still leaves out that Jesus was not born in Bethlehem. And, you know, it kind of just continues to prove the point that, that Mark is not writing to Jews. He's not writing to folks who would know the prophecy that, that the Messiah would come forth out of Bethlehem. He's writing to Gentile believers there in Rome. You see, every Jew would know that the Messiah had uh, been born, not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. And while Jesus was raised in Nazareth, uh, because of the census, his parents were visiting Bethlehem, and that's where he was born. And so that's an interesting fact. The next part there, the next part of the verse, it raises some eyebrows, and it says this, and was baptized, speaking of Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. I want to just tell you a little bit about geography again. Jordan is a river that flows out of Galilee. There's a, a, small, a small part of it on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, but most of the, the 200 miles that uh, Jordan sprawls, most of them are south of the Sea of Galilee. And if you think in your mind that, that uh, the, the, the Jordan is some large, just sprawling, beautiful, gorgeous river, it's not. It's actually a very small, if it can't even be called a river, most people look at it and think, this is the Jordan River. You know, when you're a kid, you think, this is going to be huge, it's going to be great. And it's not. It's actually pretty small, and it's very muddy, and, and not very deep. And at the widest part, I think it's like 100 feet. It's not a, it's not a very big river. And this is where John is baptizing, and this is where Jesus shows up. But why, why the eyebrows being raised? Because we looked at this intriguing man last week. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So think about that just for a moment. John, at this muddy little creek, preaching to the Jews that they repent of their sin, and if they do, that they be baptized. And Jesus shows up, and what does John do? According to Mark, he baptizes him. So maybe in your mind, you're asking this question. This is the first question I want to address this morning. Why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? Why did Jesus, the sinless Savior, submit himself to this act which flowed from a repentant heart? Did Jesus have sin that he needed to repent of? Of course not. And so why? Why would he be baptized? The idea that the Christian Lord and Jewish Messiah was baptized by a Jewish prophet in some type of a rite that typically symbolized either repentance or entrance into the Jewish faith was something a first century Christian would really scoff at and even avoided. What's more, Matthew even tells us, in speaking of the same account, the same story, that John didn't want to baptize Jesus. John didn't want to. He said, I, remember what he said last week, I'm not worthy to even un, unloose this guy's sandals, let alone baptize him. And Matthew tells us in, in chapter 3 that when, when John sees Jesus, he says, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to let me baptize? No, no. And Jesus replied, what? It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. That's Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It's proper for us to do this, 
John to baptize Jesus in order to fulfill all righteousness. And so why was Jesus baptized? If you're taking notes, the first one is this, to fulfill all righteousness. This is what Jesus said himself, to fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness, what does that refer to? Well, it refers to God's plan and purposes for Jesus. God the Father's intention for Jesus here on earth. And so part of that plan was to, complete, uh, to, to, to completely identify with man and his sin. And there's other reasons, and we'll get to them in just a minute, but it, here's the bottom line. Why does Jesus submit himself to baptism? Well, we see here that it was the Father's will that he do it. And so we'll talk about a few other reasons as to why he's baptized, but really they all fall in submission and, and subjection to this first one, that it was what the Father had willed him to do. just want to take a moment and, and park there for a second. You know, it's, it's often uh, that we, we know why it is that God has asked us to do certain things. You know, for as, you're, as a child, you might say, well, uh, Mom, I just want to know why you're telling me to do this. I, I'm going to do it. I just want to know why. And, you know, that's nice to know. It's nice to know why we're to do things, but at the end of the day, it's really none of our concern. It doesn't matter whether you're a child or whether you're just a a regular old Christian. If God commands us to do something, we don't need to know the reasons to do it. We just need to submit and to obey. And in his grace and mercy, he does allow us to know the reasoning behind certain things. But at the end of the day, don't ever think for a moment that because we have, have been invited in to know some of the backstory as to why we are to do certain things, that we have some type of a right then to pick and choose as to what we will do. And that's not what Jesus did. Why did, he, why did Jesus submit himself to baptism? Well, it was to fulfill all righteousness. This was the, Lord's, uh, this was the Father's will for Jesus. If you think about this, John calls everyone, this is ironic, he calls everyone to come and be baptized, everybody but Jesus. He's not calling Jesus to be baptized. As a matter of fact, remember, when Jesus shows up, he's like, no. So he calls everyone to come and be baptized, and not everybody comes. And even those who do have good reason to doubt their sincerity. And yet Jesus was told by John not to be baptized, and he pursues it anyway. This is, a, this is pretty ironic, but why does he do it? To fulfill all righteousness. And so the second point as to why would Jesus be baptized, it's to picture his death and resurrection. It's to picture his death and resurrection. Ever since the flood, water in the Old Testament, in the Christian faith, has pictured the judgment of God. Water has pictured the judgment of God. It has pointed to death. Oftentimes, Christians will talk about crossing the river, crossing over death into, into glory, so Jesus' baptism, it symbolized the judgment that he would endure and be victorious over. And he would walk through death and come out alive. And baptism, even for us today, it symbolizes that very thing. It symbolizes the death and resurrection of Christ. It symbolizes the death and resurrection of the Christian who is in Christ. And so Jesus' baptism here, it is a picture it's a demonstration also of what believer's baptism is. And the believer's baptism, it prefigures John's baptism of Jesus, right? They're connected. In our baptism, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is illustrated, that we are dying to our sins. The old man is dead, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Raised to walk in newness of life. It's no accident that the children of Israel in the, books, in the book of Exodus, they're led by Moses out of Egypt, which is a picture of the world. And they're led into the wilderness. But before they can actually enter into full-on wilderness land, what do they have to do? They have to cross the Red Sea. What does the Lord provide for them? He provides a way across. Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh's changed his mind, and so he sends his his team to, to chase them down. The waters spread, and the children of Israel are able to cross on dry land without enough sense to stop and think, this is abnormal Drunk with pride, Pharaoh's army races in after, and they're swallowed up by the judgment of God. They're swallowed up by water. And God's people, his children, they're spared. So you can see the symbolism here. Mark describes John calling, leading the the children of Israel out of self-righteous Jerusalem into the wilderness. And Jesus comes and he confronts there. He, He answers the call. And he confronts the waters of Jordan. He goes under, but he comes back up. And that's where Pharaoh's army failed, but he would be successful. 
And that's where we also would fail. We cannot endure God's judgment. If it were to fall on us, apart from Christ, we will be crushed by it. And that's a loving warning that I offer to you from the text this morning. That if God's judgment is on you, if you are not in Christ, protected from the waves of God's judgment, you will also be crushed. And as we said last week, the invitation is for you as well to humble yourself, to turn from your sin, and to trust Jesus Christ and receive that pardon, receive that salvation. So what else? why else was Jesus baptized? Well, because it pictured his coming death and resurrection, that he would be victorious over God's judgment. But not only is it to picture his death and resurrection, but it's also a way that Jesus would identify with sinners. It's a way that Jesus would identify with sinners. It's Again, it's no accident that verses 8 and 9 are, are next to each other. Mark's pointing out the contrast between the baptism that Jesus will perform and the one that he himself will submit to. Verse 8 ends with Jesus, the Messiah, will baptize with the Spirit. Then in verse 9, what does it say? Jesus, the giver of life, the one who will give the Spirit baptism, he submits himself to the sign of repentance. What does he do? He's identifying with sinners. He's identifying with sinners. Jesus is the second Adam. Where Adam, as a representative head, led humanity into the fall, led them into destruction, into judgment by God, Jesus, our new representative head, would lead us to redemption and ultimately restoration. So what is Jesus doing? He's identifying with sinners. There's another interesting fact here that I want to, I think, connects here. Look back at verse 5. Look back at verse 5. It has the exact, almost, it's the exact same sentence structure as verse 9. And that's intentional. In verse 5, Judea and Jerusalem, what are they doing? That the, this holy city, they're coming out to the wilderness. In verse 9, we see a, one man, not many, one man coming from Nazareth of Galilee. Contrast the two. Nazareth is known for its disinterest in the law and the things of God. It's a, it's a town full of folks who are, who are Gentile and pagan even. Contrast that with the self-righteous, holy folks in Jerusalem. But then continuing in verse 5, all of the people come to be baptized by John. All of them, he says. Great crowds. But then in verse 9, one single representative is introduced, this Galilean. He's the only one that regarded the call. He's the only Gentile, or not, sorry, not Gentile, but Galilean that would come, that we would know of, to John's baptism. I think, I, think, I think Mark is pointing something out to us. I think he's trying to demonstrate to us. Contrary to expectation, only the one from Galilee proves to be the unique son who genu- genuinely responds to the prophetic call to the wilderness. Jesus identified with sinners in his baptism Jesus was baptized as any other person who came to John. But I like this. One commentator says this. He associates himself with sinners and ranges himself in the ranks of the guilty, not to find salvation for himself, not on account of his own guilt in his flight from the approaching wrath, but listen to this, but because he is at one with the church and the bearer of divine mercy. Not on account of his own guilt did he identify with, his, with the people, with sinners. He wasn't fleeing from the wrath of God. Why does he do it? Because it, he is at one with the church and the bearer of divine mercy. Lastly, why was Jesus baptized? To divinely affirm his messiahship. To divinely affirm his messiahship. You see, Jesus did not become the son of God at his baptism or at the transfiguration. He's the Son of God from time eternity past. He's the one qualified to bestow the Holy Spirit that John talked about. 
the tearing of the heavens, the coming down of the Spirit, and the declaration of God, do not all of him being God, and the declaration of God do not alter Jesus' essential status. They only serve to indicate the universal significance of Jesus' submission to the Father's will and, uh, and to affirm that God has pleasure in his Son. That's the point of Mark's gospel. Remember, what's, what's he doing? Well, right out the gate, what does he say? The beginning of the gospel, right? Of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what Mark wants us to see this morning. That's what he wants us to be reminded of. And that's why he gets straight to this point. Before This is all prologue anyway. If you're just a, a regular Joe Schmo there in these days, you're, you don't get to read any of this. You don't get to see any of this. This is all after the fact that Mark is allowing us to see behind the curtain of. He wants us to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that will do all of the things that God promised that he would do through his servant. So he's lifting Jesus up so that men would be drawn to him. So this is why Jesus was baptized. Continuing on, let's look in verse 10. It says, and when he came up out of the water. So we're Baptists, and so we've got to put it in park here. We back up a little bit, and we make a big stink about this, right? In all fairness, good brothers and sisters, they've debated over the exact method of, of what baptism looks like and what's prescribed in Scripture. And some would sprinkle, and some would dip, and some would dunk. I think there's some Orthodox that do some really fancy stuff with kids, and they like just grab them by the ankle, and they just whoop, dip them in there while they're crying. And, and that would kind of be fun for some kids. But, but what, what is the proper method? Well, here in this passage, we find a clue that leads us Baptists to a confident position of immersion, of, 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 some, of submersion under the water. When, when, when describing Jesus' baptism, it says that he came up out of the water. He came up out of the water. Well, just context would lead us to believe that it's not saying that he walked up out of the water, but when he actually broke the surface, the tension of the top of the water. But then when you couple the, the word uh, baptizo, which is immersion, when you couple those two together, we, I believe we can be confident that the, the proper mode, method of baptism would be by immersion. This picture makes it very clear. Jesus is under the water, and so hence when we baptize, we baptize under the water like Jesus. So that's one thing. We can move on. We won't spend too much time there. Then it goes on to say, verse 10, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Well, there's a couple fun things that we want to really un unpack in that passage. But the first thing I want to point out is the, the word torn. It means, uh, it means to tear violently. It's, it's where we get the word schism. It's where we get the word schism. And the only other time that that verb is used in the entire New Testament is actually used by John Mark. And it's used to speak of the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom. And when the, the veil is torn from top to bottom, it's a, it's a picture of God doing a work that nobody else could do. The veil in the temple would, would be impossible for any man. The strongest of us, working together, we couldn't tear it. And God, like some superhero grabbing a, a, a phone book, just tears it from the top to the bottom. It was a demonstration to the, all of the Israelites when Jesus died that God had broken into time and space. The one who was outside of time and space had worked, and the evidence was clear. Verse 51 it's, uh, in, I think it's Mark uh, 15. It says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The rocks were split. So here again, this is a, obviously a story when we, we see the, the heavens being torn open. Mark's trying to demonstrate to us that God is breaking into time and space. And we'll see that in just a moment. We read it a while ago. That God speaks. After the heavens tear open, God speaks. We'll look at what he says in just a moment, but I want to ask this question because I know that you're asking. You're in your mind, you're wondering, why did the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus? Maybe you're asking, well, isn't Jesus God himself? Why does he need the Holy Spirit to descend on him? Maybe there's, there's other uh, confusions associated that I'd like to alleviate for you this morning. But as we do that, I want to read to you a quote. 
found this in a commentary this week, and I loved it. It said, many had come to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but only in the instance of Jesus, in whom true submission to God was perfectly embodied, was the coming up of the water answered by a coming down from above. If you read it in the Greek, there's these two words, katabino and anabino, and they're opposites. One means to come up, and one means to come down. You can see it very clearly. The root is the same word. And Jesus comes up out of the water and the Spirit of God descends, comes down like a dove. That's the response to Jesus' obedience. To his pure heart. The Father responds to Jesus' submission to, 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 to judgment by sending the Spirit. The Old Testament prophesied that this would happen time and again. We read about it just a moment ago with, with Pastor Tim. The Old Testament told us that the Spirit of God would descend on his servant. Another thing that's so special about this passage as we just take a break from answering this question is that it, this is the first passage to, defect, to depict, rather, in the New Testament, the Trinity. People say, well, where is the Trinity? Show me. Point it out to me. I've never understood why it's so difficult to see this. And I don't say this in, a negative, in a, some type of a condescending way, but it really is difficult for me to see it any other way. Here we have the, the heavens breaking open. God the Father is speaking. His voice is heard. The Spirit of God is descending and the Son of God is rising. And here we see the Trinity. It's a beautiful thing. That God from eternity past, the Trinity is working together. Not each to their own siloed off, but each in, in creation and in redemption and restoration. The Trinity is working together. This is what makes Christianity absolutely distinct from, from any other religion the identity of our God, that he is, a, he is a triune God. It's the God that we worship. It's the bedrock of our faith is, is nothing less than God himself. And so his identity is vitally important, and we see it in here. Jesus, Jesus isn't some type of a, a fantastic ventriloquist, some illusionist, speaking in, some, in the place for God the Father and and some illusion of the Spirit descending. No, this is all three persons of the Trinity present. See, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're distinct persons and absolutely inseparable from each other, but they are distinct. They're not to be confused or divided. They are who they are together. They're always together, and thus they always work together. This is the Trinity. And for many, the Trinity, like, like I said a moment ago, it's a questionable matter. But it's so clear here in this passage. The Son is obedient to the Father. The Father says he's pleased with the Son, and the Spirit descends on the Son. They're all present here. Again, it's no surprise then that the Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus. After all, he was the Messiah. The Old Testament said that this would happen. What does the Messiah even mean? It means anointed one. It means anointed one. And here we have a front row seat as Mark recounts for us the anointing of the Messiah. Doesn't that give you a chills? We get to witness it. They told us that the Messiah, that he would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so what do we see about Jesus? We see that he is anointed. Remember, an anointing is the same as Messiah. And what does it mean to be anointed? It means to be set apart for something. It means to, to authorize and equip someone for a task. In this, in this instance, of spiritual importance. Jesus Christ is set apart by the work of the Holy Spirit for his ministry of preaching, of healing, of delivering, of walking on water. The Holy Spirit sets Christians also apart for their ministry as well. In Christ's name. And I want to demonstrate that to you. First, speaking of Jesus being anointed by the Spirit. This is so cool. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, quotes Isaiah 61. And this is so awesome. So Jesus is, is preaching, and he's in a synagogue, he's, he's doing some teaching here, and he gets up and he reads, as the custom is in the synagogue, and so he gets up and he, he finds a part of the scriptures where it says this, here he turns to Isaiah 61, and this is what he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, from a seated position, Today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a powerful move. He turns to this well-known passage and he says, you know the Messiah that you've talked about, that we've waited for for so long? And he reads a particular passage and he says, that's me. Notice he says, in your hearing. It's been fulfilled in your hearing. This is some time after Jesus has been baptized. This is some time after the anointing of the Holy Spirit has rested upon Jesus and his humanity. And Jesus says, today is fulfilled in your hearing. You've just heard it, that is me. Again, it's said of Jesus in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, or verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went out about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So the baptism of Jesus, the anointing of the Spirit, it is the inaugural moment in Jesus' ministry. It's what unleashes him to go do, do, go do gospel work. And even, we'll look at this next week, he's tempted after his baptism, but even then, he begins his, he, he's empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit immediately leads him into the wilderness to be tempted and leads him back out of the wilderness to begin his ministry. But not only is Jesus anointed the Spirit of God, but believers are also anointed. I just want to point two things out to you. I think these are relevant to us this morning. What have we talked about this entire time? We've, we've as our of our portion of uh, studying Mark. We said we believe that Mark was writing this to encourage Christians to stand firm. And this is interesting. What does he do? He spends quite a bit of time there in the beginning telling us about how Jesus was anointed. And then also we know that Christians are also, believers are also anointed by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, it says this, and it is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So what does the spirit do as we are anointed by it? Well, it enables us to stand firm. It establishes us. It seals us. It gives us hope because of the guarantee that we have. Moving quickly, not only does it enable us to stand firm, but it also helps us to guard against falsehood, against false doctrine. First John chapter 2, verse 20 says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. And just a few verses down it says, But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you. Who did you receive it from? Jesus, the baptism of the Spirit. And you have no need that anyone teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he taught you, abide in him. So not only was Jesus anointed with the Spirit, but believers, Christians today, we are also anointed with the Spirit. And he is a guarantee. He helps us to stand firm. And he teaches us what is true. Moving on then, in verse 11 it says, And a voice came from heaven. It's an interesting thing to note that, that Jews, Jewish culture, they, especially in this time of day, they avoided, if at all possible, to say the name of God. Even to say God, they didn't want to do that. And so instead, this is Mark's way of, of saying, hey, God spoke, but he doesn't want to say God spoke. What does he say? A voice came from heaven. So if it's possible, he's going to try to use some language to avoid saying God. It's, yeah, we won't spend a ton of time here either, but it's interesting just to note how how, how different it is this in our day and age. It's quite a contrast. They would do everything that they could to avoid saying the name of God and somehow dishonoring it, and we use it as a cuss word today. And, and sadly, one that's even acceptable among Christians. We use this name as if it's nothing, if it's, as if it's cheap, dirt, dime a dozen. You, know, you might say, well, I don't mean anything by it if I, if I say, oh, God, or whatever. But what does it do when, we, when it's so common? When we use it in a way that doesn't re reverence it. We're demonstrating a cheapness on our part, from our perspective. And the same is true of hell. This is the judgment of God, and yet we use it as just some kind of a, a, just a, a pithy statement. We just throw it, whatever. Use it as a cuss word. And the judgment of God is nothing to, to be mocked or to be taken lightly. And neither is the name of God. But the voice, it rings out from heaven. And what does it say? It says, 
In verse 11, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. In the Old Testament, lots of times Israel is referred to as God's son. This is an interesting point for you to, to catch on to. But this language here, it being its beloved son, oftentimes is not accompanied by the name son. That modifier, beloved, it's, it's, it's left off many times. As a matter of fact, there, the last prophet we, we looked at was in Malachi, the last prophet before John the Baptist. What is his message from God? The son to his son, the children of Israel, what does he say? The children of Israel, what does he say to them? He's displeased. He's correcting them. He's angry with them. He's calling them to repent, and he's telling them, I'm going to send someone that's going to lead you to repentance. And then 400 years, God is silent. And then the voice breaks through, tears the clouds, tears the sky, as it were, and cries out to Jesus, the one who came up out of the water, who stared the judgment of God in the face and was victorious over it. This is why Mark is telling us about Jesus' baptism. He, he wants us to see, again, that Jesus is the beloved son, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Israel ever wanted to be and ever thought they could be. It's fulfilled in Jesus. So we see this approval for, of Jesus from heaven, and he goes on to say, With you I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. Maybe you're like me and you've got a daddy wound. I'd say all of us do. We hear this. We, see, we hear, wouldn't we love to have that set of us, the Father, looking at you and saying, you're my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Doesn't that just make you stand up a little straighter, ears get a little bit bigger, that this would be said of you by your Father, and how much more that Jesus would have this said of his heavenly father. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the dream of every kid. It's the longing of every heart that their father would say this about them. And this statement that Jesus makes, he's blending. It's so, so beautiful. He's blending. He's sewing together several passages from old. Genesis chapter 1, Psalm chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 42. Again, if you're, if you're taking notes, I'll say this slower. Genesis 1. Psalm 2, and Isaiah 42. He's, he's, he's tying these together. Genesis chapter 1 says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning was the sixth day. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, it says, I will, de- I will tell to the, of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And Isaiah Chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. What is Jesus saying? What is God saying of Jesus here? At his coronation psalm there in, in, in Psalm chapter 2, he's speaking of the, the kingly Messiah. He's tying in the, the servant aspect of this Messiah. And he's saying, I am pleased in him. This really brings me to, or us, I should say, to the last question that I want to address. Why was the Father pleased with Jesus? Why was the Father pleased with Jesus? And, and maybe a secondary question, how can I also please the Father like Jesus? Maybe you'd like to have that said of you one day. Something like that. That, that our Father... God the Father would look on us and say that he is pleased with us and that we, in some sense, are a beloved son, not at the same level of Jesus, but that we're beloved. First, let's answer the question, why was the Father pleased with Jesus? I want to just say one word. This will, this will take the shortest amount of time. Obedience. That's it. Obedience. Why was the Father pleased with Jesus? Because Jesus obeyed. Jesus submitted to, his, to the Father's direction and will. You see, the Father was throughout eternity past. He was pleased with the Son eternally. But now that he's taken on flesh, he's taken on humanity, and he's come to enact the plan that the Father set forth from before time. This is the time that had been appointed, and the Spirit 
resting on the humanity of Jesus now as he exits the water. He's in perfect submission to the Father, and he's prepared now to do the very thing that he had come to do. And what was that? To redeem his people back. As the Father cries out over him, I'm pleased. Jesus had done what no other man could do. In his righteousness, he pleased the Father. In our natural state, left to our own devices, even the sweet ones that run the halls in your home, they displease the Lord. Because they disobey the Lord. Even in their hearts. Categorically, we are enemies of God. We are not adored sons. And why? You say, I don't want to have that said of me. Maybe that's your cry this morning. I don't want to have that said of me. I don't want to be called an enemy of God. I don't want to be somebody that doesn't please God. I would ask this of you. Is that really what you want? Do you really want to please God more than anything else? Because I, I have it on good authority that most of us here, if not all of us, what do we want? We want to please ourselves more than anything. And so often that's the very thing that we, we, we follow after. Oftentimes that's why we get up in the morning. We want to please ourselves. We want to earn another dollar to bring us closer to our goals. We want to spend more time with people that can get us closer again to our goals, whatever our desire is, whatever our, our idol that we're worshiping that we'll sacrifice on our own altar for our own glory. And so we say, I want to please God. I want, I want that to be said of me. But often that's not the case. It's that you want to please yourself. And what does Jesus do here? Remember, Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He, he let it all go. He didn't serve himself. What did he do? He came to serve the church. He came as an obedient servant, sent from the Father. He laid his life down. And what do we do? Well, we pick our lives up. It's our innate desire that, 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 that we please ourselves, not that we please God. Maybe still you say, I, that's, I, I still desire, I want, the, to, I want to long for that. So what's the answer? How do I move forward? How do I get this? How, do I, how can this be said of me? Because the sub-question is, for those who would truly desire to please the Father, the answer is that you look to Jesus. The answer is that you look to Jesus. Because remember, our only hope of the Father finding pleasure in us is that we be found in the Father. Again, if you're like me this morning, you say, I just wish my dad would tell me that I'm his beloved son and that in me he is well pleased. And you run across this passage here, find hope. Why? Because the Father is saying that about me as well. And do you know why? Not because of works of righteousness, which I have done, but according to Jesus' mercy, this is said of me as well. This is said of me as well. And it can be said of you. The Father can find pleasure in you if you will be found in Jesus. What a glorious truth. What an offer that you have, that's been extended to you this morning. Remember, we've got to die to our sin. We've got to turn from our sin. Repent of it. Change our minds about it. Look to Jesus. Look to the cross and receive mercy and be found in him. So this divine lamb of God, Jesus, he took on the yoke of obedience. And he looked over at us who also in some way tried but failed. We couldn't lift our yoke and he looks to us divine lamb of God and he says join me take my yoke upon you it's easy it's light learn of me walk with me he says that's the invitation this morning as our eyes move from the book of John to the table before us I want to remind you that that's what communion's all about that's what communion's all about. We, we remember the sinless savior, savior who died in our place. 
We remember that. I want to tell you right at the, the beginning of our time entering into communion that at this table there is nothing for you if you're not a Christian. There's nothing for you. This is a symbol of, of something that Christians hold dear this morning. And so while we participate, I don't want to single anybody out or call anybody, but if you're not a Christian this morning, if you've not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, followed the Lord in believer's baptism, connected yourself with a local body, Just watch while we partake. And I want to invite you to consider the sermon. Consider the passages that we've read this morning, chiefly Mark chapter 1. The symbol won't get you anything from God. It's a reminder of what we've already received as Christians. Its job is just to, to, to be a memorial for us, what God has already granted us. And so if you're a Christian today, I want to give you some instructions from the Bible on how we can take communion in accordance with God's will for us. So Paul gives us those instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bible, you can flip over there. They won't be on the screen unless they can move quickly. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to read that to you. We'll start in verse 27. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 27. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. But let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the fruit of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks within, uh, without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may be condemned along with the world. So the question for you this morning is not whether or not you are worthy but whether or not you are attached to the one who is worthy. So the question for you to ask yourself is, am I in Christ this morning? Am I walking with Christ? Examine yourself. This is what Paul calls us to do. Are you, how do you know if you're walking with the Lord? How do you know that if, if you really are in Christ? Well, are you walking in obedience to the Lord's commands? We call Jesus our Lord because he is our master. He's given us commands as Christians. And those, he tells us, who are in Christ will obey. So generally speaking, consider your own life. Are you walking in any sin this morning that you need to repent of, that you're holding onto this morning, that you need to lay down, that you need to turn from and repent of? Is there sin that you're harboring in your heart? Have you been obedient to the Lord just as his name and his judgment, don't make light of his sacrifice. Don't make light of his sacrifice. And so this morning we reverently come to the table, not in fear and trembling, but we do search our hearts. And we ask him to reveal any wicked, sinful way in us. And we, re- we repent of it, we turn from it, and then with hope and with joy we come to the table and receive the reminder of the grace that he's given to us. So what are you to do? Repent, confess, and eat. He goes on to give us some more instructions regarding the the supper. In verse 23 of chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Christians, when you take the bread, consider that Christ's body was broken. Consider that it was broken for you and that he paid the price for your sins. The bread is the symbol of him having taken all the wrath that we deserve, all of the judgment, all of the punishment, and leaving nothing left but affection and love and grace for the Christian. So again, we don't come trembling to the table. We come with hope and joy remembrance of the fact that we have been cleansed and that the affection of the Father and the love and grace is available for us because of the broken body. Paul goes on to say in verse 25, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
And so this cup this morning is a cup of the covenant. A relationship with God that can never be broken. And we drink of the cup and we take in the truth that God has bound us to him in a way that will last through all of our mistakes and failures and difficulties. Though they be many. But we also eat with a view toward the day that we'll have the joy one day of seeing him face to face in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And this is a symbol, but one day we won't need a symbol any longer. One day we will eat and drink with our Lord and Savior face to face, and we won't need a symbol any longer. What a beautiful promise we have. So Christian, the invitation is for you this morning to examine your hearts. Consider the weight of what he has done for us. We have a hope. We can't please God on our own, on our own, but in Christ, we please the Father. And so with that said, let's rejoice together as we take communion. I'll pray, and when I finish, the tables will be open. Father, this morning we come to the table with hope and with joy. Again, there's nothing that we have done. There's nothing that we could have done. According to your mercy, you saved us. And you've invited us to this table. So would you, would you help us to search our hearts? Would you do that work? And reveal to us any wickedness. Father, that we would repent of it. We would be, that we would be nourished by the time that we spent in your word this morning as we come to this table, that we would be encouraged. And that as a result of our time with you this morning, again, the prideful would be brought low, the lowly would be lifted up, the weak would be strengthened, and the hopeless would be encouraged. Jesus, we pray these things in your name as we enter and approach your table. Amen. The tables are open. Thank you.